My name is Tom Cross. I'm a Vietnamese-American film editor living in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Hey, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and I just want to get this out of the way. You are probably the first Vietnamese to have won an Academy Award, an Oscar in our community, right? I I might be. I've heard that from um, some people. And I'm always uh, I'm I'm always afraid to claim that myself. I don't feel I almost feel like I, I don't have the right to claim it myself. So thank you for uh, <laughs> for claiming that momentarily for me. Uh, if that is in fact true, that part is is very overwhelming um, to me uh, to ponder that, to think about that. Um, and you know, beforehand, before I was fortunate enough to win an Academy Award, I, I never really. I never really gave much thought about what it meant to represent in a way. Um, I certainly uh, had and have complicated feelings about, um, you know, where I'm from and my background and my parents and, you know, me being Vietnamese American, admiration, what does that mean? Um, which is, which is why we're here, why we're talking. Um, I feel like, but but in terms of representing, I never really gave it any thought until that happened. And then all of a sudden, this was kind of, you know, for better or worse, mostly for better, like sort of thrust into my world and into my consciousness. Um, and it's something that, you know, I, I think about constantly now, whereas before I didn't think about it really at all. I took the measures to check online and ask people who have encyclopedic knowledge, like my buddy Anderson lay. And, yeah. uh, we, we came to the conclusion, you know, uh, Kiwe Kwan is, uh, the first Vietnamese born to have won the Oscar, but you're the first Vietnamese, uh, American or Vietnamese person of descent to win an Oscar. And that's a major deal. And I, you know, I, I debate about, how much time I'm going to spend on the actual winning of that and the representation yeah. and the actual technical side of, of, of editing and, and, and what that, so I'm going to try to go for all of it uh, in this. I love it. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is, I feel like um, welcome to the rabbit hole, right? I mean, this <laughs> is um, we're going to need another, we're going to need another bunch of sessions, Ken, to, <laughs> to, uh, to get to the bottom of all this. And I welcome it. And first of all, before we start, I want to shout out to Dawn who made that introduction to us yeah. and Dawn's so lovely. She's followed up so many times about um, having the interview with you. So thank you, Dawn. Yes. Thank you, Dawn. I mean, Dawn is, is um, we're speaking about, uh, Duan Wang, who is the documentary filmmaker, um, who did this amazing documentary, Oh Saigon, um, and is, is currently working on, uh, another project and works on other, other projects. And, um, yeah, I mean, her work is a real inspiration to me personally. And also, I mean, just being her friend and, colleague and you know like uh, you know i've really it's it's sort of invited me to think about um you know your question which is what is it 
what does it mean to be Vietnamese? And uh, I have a very, I feel like I always have very complex and complicated things going on in my brain. You know, um, you know, I'll just say to today now at, you know, um, September 8th uh, at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, you know, I think it means that I'm part of um, a long list of um, amazing people who have a long history. Um, it's an honor to be a part of that group. Um, and, you know, it's it's something that you know, I almost feel like even though, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been around for a long time. I almost feel like I'm, I just got invited into the group or I'm new in some ways. Um, and that's part of my complicated, you know, um, relationship with it. But, um, I see it as sort of a positive thing. And it's funny because, you know, listening to you speak with other people on this program, um, I've heard a lot of amazing, um, insights, a lot of amazing stories. And I think one podcast I was listening to made reference to, you know, almost having an idealized view of what it means to be, um, Vietnamese. And, um, and, and I think what was expressed was that, you know, was that, that it's good to be careful and cautious about, about, having too idealized view, like having it be a narrow, um, a narrow runway in a way that being Vietnamese is very complex, which, which certainly it is. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say I have a reductive view of it, but I just say that I, I pull out a couple things almost just as a North star for me, as I try to navigate my own, identity, you know, which is an ongoing thing. Again, I, I say like what it means today, um, but it's, it changes, it evolves all the time. And uh, certainly from the very beginning, it was, it was a challenging thing, what, but. Um, what made it so complicated for you? What makes it so complicated for you? Well, you know, like I was born in this country. Um, my parents met in Vietnam in the mid 1960s. Um, uh, my dad um, had been in the military, he had served, uh, he was a little too old to serve in Vietnam. So he served uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Um, and so by the time the, 19, the mid 1960s came around, he had already been, he was in the first Peace Corps he was continuing similar work. He had a grant from the U.S. government to be a swim coach in Vietnam uh, and, and other places like he went to Senegal. So he was in Vietnam to kind of, um, you know, in, in the heady days of the early 60s and the mid 60s, he was in Vietnam to help spread, um, you know, Western culture um, and try to be supportive in that way um, in, in, you know, be a supportive American. And so he was a swim coach in, in Vietnam. He was in Saigon and he met my mom who was a librarian at this American library. I think it was called the Abraham Lincoln library or something like that in Saigon. And my mom was also uh, an artist. She was a painter and she had, there was a, an exhibit somewhere in Saigon of some artwork and hers was I think, I don't know if it was her exhibit, but her artwork was there. 
my dad bought one of her paintings and then asked her out uh, and they started dating. And then I don't know if this was in 65, might've been 65. Um, in 1966, they got married um, kind of uh, I think in the summer of 66, they got married and uh, they left uh, I think in 1967 to go back to where my dad was from, which was Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is where I was born. So I was um, born in the Midwest. And uh, when I was about five or six, we moved to upstate New York, Rochester, New York, um, home of Eastman Kodak. Um, and that's where I grew up in upstate New York. And I would say in both places, you know, I did not know a lot of Vietnamese people. I mean, certainly my parents had friends. Um, a lot of the families we connected with besides relatives. And we we didn't have any relatives very, very nearby in Milwaukee. Um, so we connected with other families and couples. And I think all of them that I recall, um, the, the, the wives were Vietnamese and the husbands were white, for lack of a better way, you know, more specific way of putting it. So, um, so they connected with similar type couples and while there were Vietnamese folk festivals that we would participate in and attend in Milwaukee, um, and while the families all um, like loved Vietnamese food, loved eating pho, loved you know like like all the all the um, all the all the women would would cook. They knew they knew how to cook, and and um, we would all eat. You know, I was. I did not eat Vietnamese food when I grew up. I mean, I was from a very early age, I was um, intent on, on just being kind of the American kid. And, and I don't think I made any big decision. That's just, that was just kind of the natural, that was like the laws of following the laws of gravity a little bit. Yeah. Um, because I, I went to school where there were no Vietnamese children. Um, Early on, I I don't even know if there were any Asian children. I don't remember. Um, so, you know, I really was just intent on fitting in and just become, you know, just being like everyone else. And I have to say that, you know, my mom, I spoke to my mom about this later, um, not, not in any deep conversation, but I remember having casual conversations about it, about, you know, um, keeping the culture and keeping the Vietnamese influence. And I think my mom's initial thought was that she didn't want to fight the laws of gravity in a way. I think she felt that, you know, her country was um, had changed or was not the country she grew up in. And so um, she I think it, it wasn't clear to her that we were ever going to return. And so um, this was this was the way things were going to be. This was our new life. We were going to, I mean, <laughs> new to her and a change for her, but not for me. I mean, it was all I knew. And so, um, you know, she fully embraced um, Midwest American cuisine, culture, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you know, I mean, I grew up with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and, and all the... Um, you know, Twinkies and that type of thing that all the other American kids um, sort of grew up with. So, um, so there was never any, she didn't push the culture and um, outside of, you know, when I was very little, 
uh, very young, maybe three or four years old. I remember, you know, learning how to count in Vietnamese. Like there were certain things she yeah. would, um, she would try to teach teach me with. But um, but that disappeared very early on. And again, I always feel like it was, it was it was my mom sort of following the laws of gravity as they existed at that time um, at that place. And so all I knew was just being, you know, like an American kid. And, uh, and that was pretty, you know, that was challenging because, um, and I've, I've heard a lot of stories on your program here, sort of touching on things that are very familiar and I can, I, I totally identified with, but, you know, when we would see my Vietnamese relatives, I always felt like I was just kind of the white kid, you know? And I didn't speak the language. I don't. I don't speak Vietnamese um, uh, outside of counting for when when I take a photograph, mokaba. You know, like that's that's about that's about it. But what I also remember is that you know, with my friends at school, um, they always just thought I was Asian. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah, and and. But of course, no one, no one really knew Vietnamese. Like, so it was always like, you, you know, are you Chinese? Are you Japanese? Are you Korean? I mean, no one, I don't think when I was a little kid, I don't think anyone arrived at Vietnamese. Right. You know? um, even though the Viet, the Vietnamese, the Vietnam War experience um, for this country was still very near because I grew up in the 1970s. It was still very, very much, I mean, we're still living off the fumes of that. Um, strangely, people's consciousness of Vietnamese people was so non-existent um, that people always pegged me as being Chinese or, you know, but that's, that's the funny thing is that I was, to my white friends, I was Asian and to my Vietnamese relatives, I was, I was white. That so, is a complicated place to be. That's a complicated. I mean, even for me, yeah. born in the United States, it's yeah. a complicated because sometimes it's either I'm fully American, fully Vietnamese, but I'm neither one of those as well. But I can't imagine being actually half white and half Vietnamese. That's even more perplexing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it, it was very odd, and um, you know, I mean, my parents. You know, my name is Tom Cross, but my parents gave me a Vietnamese name when I was born. My my name is Min Tom. Oh, wow. um, and I think from from a very early age, you know, my parents would just refer to me as Tom, just Tom for short. It's the same name, Min Tom, but they would say, oh, we say Tom. And so I started going by that Tom and I would in school when I was five years old or six years old and seven. I would write Tom, like that would be on my name, Tom, T-A-M, you know, uh, cross. And that was really ultimately problematic for a little kid just trying to fit in because no one knew how to pronounce Tom, Tom as Tom. It would be Tam, right? which um, was also challenging because that was Tam or Tammy is the name of was the name of a girl, you know? And so it was, it was just, it, it was like a, a six-year-old's nightmare. Yeah, it's like a, <laughs> it's just, like a hot mess. A total hot mess. And so eventually I asked my 
parents if I could change my name, because by that point, I just went by Tom and I just wanted to be Tom in, in a way that was, that would not draw attention, um, you know, uh, to me. That was my biggest thing as a little kid is I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to be like everyone else. Um, and, and the funny thing is that this is, this is very interesting. I, when I, when my family moved from the Midwest to upstate New York, we moved to Rochester. I grew up in a very Jewish community. A lot of my friends um, were Jewish, and I, in some ways, was more exposed yeah. to that culture growing up than Vietnamese. So I grew up as a kid going to, you know, my friends' bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, and we observed all Jewish holidays, and um, and I and it was amazing, and I loved that. I loved being in that. But, um, and, you know, I think at that, at a certain age, I think I just wanted to be Jewish, you know? Um, and so again, for me, it was like following, following the laws of gravity and just not wanting, not wanting to stick out in a way or stand out really yeah. just wanting to like be anonymous. Um, and so I kept asking, I kept harassing and bothering my parents to change my name and they always would kind of brush it off or whatever. And eventually somewhere, I think entering into high school or something, they, they said, okay, if you really want to do it, we'll do it. And, and I ended up changing my name. Um, what's really funny is I don't know whose idea it was, but I, I think of myself as Tom Cross. I'm Tom, you know, cause that's again, different spelling, but that's what I've always been, you know, and somehow, you know, we had to change my name to the the sort of formal version of Tom, which is Thomas, which is fine, but it's not really the name yeah. that. So to me, it's a little it's almost like I can laugh about it now. It's almost like a little bit of a a, a cruel joke that, you know, I'm Tom Cross, but then I have to I, I it's like Tom I like, but Thomas, eh, you know, so sometimes when I'm in a place where someone is looking at my license or my paperwork, they refer to me as Thomas. It always sound, it feels um, you know, like a little silly, but, uh, but it's, but, you know, anyways, but that, that, so the other footnote to that is, is just that, um, even though I changed my name, I have a lot of family all over the place in different parts of, they've moved to different parts of the United States, um, some in France, other parts of Europe. And, uh, a lot of them, um, from back in the day, like still refer to me as Mintom. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and I kind of love it. I mean, I think initially, I, you know, I don't think it didn't from them, it didn't bug me, but it was also like, it felt like more of a, Oh, they're using the old name. They don't know, but now I actually really love it. And it's almost like, uh, it reminds me of that little bit, that story character bit in star Wars, where, where the first first Star Wars, uh, you know, New Hope, where Luke Skywalker finds Ben Kenobi, and then he actually, you know, it's revealed he goes by this his oh yeah his old name Obi Wan, you know, and so um, having grown up in an era of Star Wars movies, I remember thinking oh yeah that's that's like my that's my old name from another life or something oh, like that, you know, yeah. it's just nope. wild. Such a a cool journey. I mean, it's complicated, but. It comes full circle, you know. Today, you you love the name Mintum, and you know it's you know, we, it's hard to, to to go backwards and change it professionally, but it's still part of the the genetic uh, your DNA. Now, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, who knows? Maybe I don't know. I mean, 
it's it feels like maybe I'll change it, but it also I say that knowing that it feels a little silly to I don't know I feel a little like are we really going to do this? We're really going to go back and forth? Like we're going to keep yeah. changing it or something? But anyways, that's that's a whole other thing. But uh, uh, but yeah, there was a time where it was I didn't want to um, I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to be that because that meant that the first day of school when the teacher called the role, she would he or she would mangle the name, would never pronounce it right. It would always be a big mess, um, unlike all the other kids. And I'd have to, you know, raise my hand and correct everyone. And it's, it was um, for like a five, six, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, it was like a nightmare. Yeah. When did you develop a love for film? Did you have it early on in your life? Very early, very early on. I mean, I just loved watching movies i have a memory of um the first movie i ever saw was uh, when my parents were watching a james bond movie on television um and i was probably five years old and i have a memory distinct memories of scenes from that movie it was the movie thunderball with sean connery an early james bond movie and um yeah and i always you know Sean Connery in that silver Aston Martin yeah. um, have strong memories of that. So, um, so I grew up loving those movies that I would see on TV. And then later I would see them in the movie theater. I was a kid who grew up in the seventies. So star Wars loomed extremely large um, for, for people in, in that generation. Um, so I just loved going to the movies and, you know, my mom was an artist Um painter, sculptor, printmaker. Um, so she always encouraged cre creative work, um, always encouraged me drawing and doing th creative things. Um, and my dad, you know, I wouldn't call him a cinephile, but he just loved, he's always loved movies. And so as a family, the three of us, I'm an only child, the, the three of us would go out to the movies all the time. We'd watch movies on TV together. And it was my dad who really started to nurture this idea of filmmaking to me. And somewhere in high school, I think I was, you know, as we entered into the age of um, renting videotapes and stuff like that and renting movies, um, you know, I would, I would often hang out with my friends and we just rent a pile of movies and just watch these movies. And my dad, I think took notice and he would, you know, he would buy me books on filmmaking and there weren't that many back in the day, but he would buy, um, yeah, buy me film books or, and, and he would talk about movies he remembered seeing that he loved like Alfred Hitchcock movies. And, um, so I would say from an early age, I always loved the movies, um, avid moviegoer. And then, um, you know, that entertainment, that, thrill, you know, evolved into kind of a real um, interest in terms of how movies are made in high school. Like that's where I started really getting um, into starting to explore the nuts and bolts of it. Yep. And, uh, and that led to going to film school, um, which my parents fully encouraged and lovingly sent me through, but it was wow. early. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Now, did you start out wanting to be an editor or director or writer? I started out wanting to make my own film. So when I went to film school, I wanted to be 
um, yeah, I wanted to be a director and, um, and going to the school I went to purchase college or, uh, it's known as purchase college. Now it was state university of New York at purchase SUNY purchase. Um, you know, it was a film conservatory where they would try to teach you all the different disciplines of filmmaking. So you would study writing, you'd study acting, um, you know, you would study cinematography, editing. And I found that there were a lot of parts of the process that, you know, I didn't gravitate toward and parts of the process that I did. And editing was something I really enjoyed quite a bit. Um, and then when I graduated, I still think I thought that I might want to make my own films, but I had to, I had to start working. And after purchase, I moved in with a couple buddies into New York city um, cause the school was maybe about an hour away from New York. So that was the, that was the logical, um, next step for a lot of us. And so we moved to New York and a bunch of my film buddies and I, um, just tried to, you know, pound the pavement and get work and, um, and through some connections and the kindness of some, some strangers, I, um, landed, a an assistant editing job at a commercial editing company which, which is something I really wanted. Um, I, I, again, I really, I, I still thought I was going to make my own movies, but I also really wanted to get a job in editing and that kind of started my career. And then I, you know, once I really got into it, you know, this interest in making my own film sort of subsided a little bit. And it was, I don't know, my, my passion just became, you know, how do I collaborate with filmmakers to help them tell their stories? I love, I love putting pieces together. I love collaborating with people, you know? So rather than how do I get my vision on the screen? It was, it was more like, how do I, how do I collaborate with people to help them, you know, get their vision on the screen in the best possible way? There's three parts to this whole filmmaking stuff. Uh, the writing, which is the ideation and then the actual making of it and production directing. And then there's you you're the final stop. You're the guy right. who really makes that movie uh, turn into that gold. Right. Maybe. Or, <laughs> or, or gold or something else depends on what it is. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I just, you know, I think it's such a, I think it's such a beautiful craft. It's a beautiful, um, film discipline, you know, for those that are interested in such things, you know, like it's, it's, you know, we start, I start putting the pieces together as soon as they start filming, you know, um, that's kind of the standard way has been the standard way, uh, for, for years in Hollywood. Um, you try to keep up to camera, um, and that way you can kind of, um, inform the filmmakers as you, as, as we're going along, how things are going, are there any problems? Do we need to reshoot something? Would there be some other piece that'd be helpful to pick up? Um, but it's kind of an insurance policy in a way yeah. while they're shooting. Um, and, and, um, I love that. And that's where that's, you know, during that time it's, it changed editing changes. You know, there people have this idea about film editing as, is is one person in a dark room and you have to like working in a solitary way that is part of the job but it's it's really an incomplete vision of of what a feature film editor does i mean we work autonomously during filming because 
the directors are, are usually too busy to come in to work with you. So we are on our own based on notes from the set. We put things together. But to say I'm working autonomously, that's not even accurate either. I'm, the director's not with me, but I'm with a crew of assistant editors and other post professionals who, who, um, who I rely on, who, who help me do what I'm doing. We're working all together to get this together. Um, and what, what, what makes you pick a project? Um, that's a good question. And I tr I've tried to be, you know, I've been very, after I've had a couple, I was lucky to have a couple hits um it's it's enabled me to have that luxury in a way to start picking projects i mean i just out of the gate i would say it's uh, it's i look at who's directing um it's filmmakers usually i mean i read the script um i see who's going to be in the movie what's the story that's really important to me um but i think above all else it's director it's the filmmaker like i remember i remember getting a call this was shortly after uh, Whiplash, when Whiplash played the Sundance Film Festival. I can't remember if it had been released. It was certainly before the awards and all that stuff, but may maybe it had been theatrically released. It was it was starting to garner some heat and attention. And I got a call from a producer asking me if I wanted to work um, on a David O. Russell movie. And I, I'm just, I'm a big fan. I love Three Kings. I love Silver Linings Playbook. I mean, all his movies. And so to get a call to say, you know, hey, we loved your work on Whiplash. We want you, you know, would you be interested in working for this amazing filmmaker? I mean, that that's that was the first one of those big calls I got. Yeah. And that was, was for joy, right? That was for joy. And that was like a that was a dream. I yeah. was like and also I was, I was petrified because I'd never done anything that big. David is a is is a very um you know, his 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 work is kind of monumental and he's a larger than life you know, personality, at least in what I'd seen publicly and stuff like that and interviews and things like that. You know, I was intimidated, yeah. but, um, but I was like, I need to, you know, this is the sort of call that you're supposed to answer when you get, you know, this is one of those Hollywood dream scenarios. Yeah. So I got it. You got to leap at it. And, uh, and I loved working on that movie. It was really challenging. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it, it really, it was a test but um, I was not the only editor. There were three other editors on the movie. I loved working with them. I loved working with David. But um, but that, you know, being able to, I don't know, I guess, I guess the thing, oh, this is what I was going to say is, you know, I was telling an editor friend about it. Oh, I got a call, David Russell's movie. And he asked me, like, that sounds amazing. You know, how is the script? You know, and I was like, I, I have no idea. I haven't read it because I, ha I hadn't been sent it. So I said yes to the job without reading the script because right. I didn't need to because it's it's David, yeah. you know. So so I'd say filmmaker, you know. Yeah, that's a uh, that that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense because, you know, they're going to make the right decisions. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Or or, you know. Yeah, that that you know that you'll I don't know, you it's like I still think that I'm even though I've been doing this a long time, I I was an assistant editor for almost 20 years before I got a got my editing breaks and then my success as an editor has been very rapid. Um but that was only after, you know, yeah, slaving away for Yeah, it's like overnight success that took 20 years, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, but I, I, yeah, I guess I, I, you know, I want to, 
like if I'm, I always feel like I learn something on every job. So in a way it's, I'm still learning. It's like on the job training, I'm still learning while I'm working. And if I can learn from the best storytellers or the storytellers that interest me, then, then, you know, that feels like that's a really great path. You know, I, um, I understand the process of creativity, of ideation, of putting things together and editing and, and rewriting. But how do you know when things are right? How do you know when they're finished? That's really tough. I mean, I, I forget who said it and I'm going to be mangling and paraphrasing wildly, but, you know, I, you know, it's, it's a, a, you often hear that, you know, films are never really finished. They're abandoned. Um, and to a certain extent, I guess that's true. I mean, it's always, almost always a race to the finish, whether yeah. you're making a release date or, or just that the studio only has so much in their budget, so much in their coffers for you to, um, to work up into, uh, up until so. Um, it's, it's always like a rush, no matter, I mean, the, the small movies like whiplash, um, that was the fastest schedule I ever had. So that, that was definitely a rush because we were trying to make the Sundance film festival, yeah. but it, even a big movie like James Bond, you know, with, with a huge budget and stuff like that, even that was like kind of a, a race to the finish, you know? So, um, how do you know when it's done? I mean, I, like when I work on these movies with Damien Chazelle, Whiplash, La La Land, First Man, Babylon, I always feel like, and it was even true of Whiplash where we had no time, it always feels like we um, turned over every stone, you know, we, and that, so that's how I'm able to detach by the end. If I feel like I've, I've, that we've truly vetted everything on the movie, um, which we do, which I always feel like with Damien's movies, um, then that that helps comfort you, I guess, for yeah. like putting out, birthing this thing and putting out into the world. Because otherwise, that would be: Are we doing the right thing? How yeah. will we ever know? And a method to to help us with that is that you know we we have friends and family screenings. We um, we organize screenings in our editing room, but also organize you know we'll we'll um, We'll screen the movie in in uh, screening rooms or theaters on on the studio lot uh, wherever we're working, and we'll invite friends and fa family and and of course our collaborators just to watch and get it, not only get get advice from them but just to feel it in the room with the people. That's one of the biggest things you'll hear. I think film editors talk about is is learning so much from watching a rough cut with people. Um, you know, even if you don't talk to them, even if you uh, if you if you, they answer questionnaires, you know, yeah. um, just that feeling, you know, like you yourself as an editor, as a filmmaker, you get antsy when um, when something feels like it's too long and it's boring, it's dragging. I mean, you want to just die, you know, <laughs> and then similarly, when there's something that is um, that is really you know, it's that the joke is killing or it's like really, you know, something's really working well. Um, you know, you want to milk that moment. Oh, we could, we could, we could embellish that a little bit more because this part is working amazingly. So, but that's like with an audience, you know, this relationship, uh, in, in film is very collaborative and 
you have found this um, this connection with Damien. How did that come about? And I don't mean the meeting of Damien Chazelle. I, I mean the formation of that bond. Did you sort of know right after Whiplash? I mean, how did it feel? Because you know Scorsese and 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 Spielberg, no, and those no. guys yeah. have their yeah their guys, yeah, and, or their gals uh, in Spielberg yeah. situation, right? And how do you know that this is going to be the team that you're basically moving on in life for for, yeah. for forever almost? Yeah, I mean, I think early on, you know, when when we met. I mean, we hit it off from the very beginning, um, just in terms of our interests. We liked a lot of the same movies. I guess we, you know, it was it was the conversations. We would talk creatively about movies, like movies we liked. Yeah. Before we had made anything together, it was like, what movie? Oh, I love this movie. I love that. And we found that we appreciated a lot of the same directors and a lot of the same um uh, movies and then we'd start talking about scenes and we literally start talking about editing like frames you know oh i loved it in this movie when it looked like they took a frame out to for more impact or you know um and then i would talk about things that i thought was inspiring like when some someone put a, fr a flash frame in something to give impact like so we're literally talking about construction you know getting into the minutiae and so it starts with these creative conversations where like, wow, we're, we're on the same page, you know? And, uh, and then that sort of expanded into what we were doing. We could take that language, those conversations and apply them to what we were working on. So I would say early on that happened. And then that just continues. And I, I think a big thing, you know, I mean, I guess with a collaborator, either you, either you hit it off or you don't you connect or you don't connect um, or there obviously there's areas of gray in between, but yeah. like, I think with a big thing is just um, how you communicate, how you speak. And, and that's in these conversations, that's what Damien and I have in the editing room. And um, that's not everyone's style. Everyone's yeah. style is not necessarily to talk it out. Damien and I talk it out. So, um, you know, and we do it in such a way that there's trust so that, um, you know, he's not afraid to pitch me an idea. What if we do this, yeah. you know? And I think for creative people, that's really, that's shouldn't be taken for granted. That's, that's hard to, um, pitch something. And because you're afraid that you, you're going to, you're, you're going to pitch the wrong thing, or you're going to offend someone, or you're going to look like an idiot, yeah. you know? Um, and then someone's going to completely lose faith. You know, oh, you want to do that? Why would you say, why would you ever want to do that? You're, you know, they're going to start distrusting your taste and your judgment. And so, but somehow very early on, Damien and I established a rapport where um, when we get into the editing room, that's this safe place, a sanctuary, and we can just pitch ideas. And, um, and you know, sometimes you know, we'll be talking about a scene and it'll require some extra, some new dialogue, some ADR, some off-screen lines or something. And, uh, or, or maybe it's not even, maybe it's just rearranging scenes and, 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 uh, you know, to map it out, we'll either talk it through or sometimes we'll get on, he'll get on a laptop and he'll start writing it and we'll sit next to each other and we'll be just talking and he'll be, you know, he's such a brilliant writer. So I feel like I'm in a place, I, I feel like very, um, 
honored. I'm where I'm sitting next to him. Literally, you know, we're kind of just conversing and he's sort of transcribing what we're talking about, you know? Um, and so I think that's what makes those collaborations uh, work and what makes them, what feeds them and makes them last a long time. So when you talk about Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker or Steven Spielberg and Michael Kahn, I think, I mean, I've never, I've never met Thelma. I've met Michael Kahn once, don't know him really, but uh, my guess, my educated guess is that when they're in their respective editing rooms, it's a free dialogue, you know, where the filmmaker and the editor um, aren't afraid to pitch things, you know, or, or, you know, or, or are courageous enough to pitch nine out of 10 things, maybe, you know, um, I think that's what it is. I think that's, that's it at its core, you know, um, art is, you know, art, t- like it takes, it really takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there, whatever it is you're doing, whether it's movies or whatever it is, music, you know, visual arts, like to put yourself out there. Um, and movies is something, especially I feel like you're very, when you, if your movie is going to be on the 50 foot screen yeah. and you're screening it for critics and audiences, I mean, you're pretty, I know filmmakers always talk about this feeling very naked, naked. you know? Um, and uh, yeah, I remember, I remember doing a first cut for a, a, a filmmaker early on and uh and he came in to look at my first cut of it, you know, uh, an editor's cut or first cut. And uh, and he saw it and he had notes and he's, uh, you know, complimented me, but it was like, we both agreed, okay, now now it's a starting point, you know? And 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 he wanted to speak freely and, and he started kind of, you know, um, speaking honestly about the issues with the movie, not with my work, but with, you know, and he prefaced it by saying, "Okay, look, you, you've 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 seen me with my clothes off, so mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm just gonna I'm not gonna um, I'm just gonna speak freely, yeah. you know." And so, you know, so as an editor, if if there's anything I can do to um, help create that safe space and protect, um, you know, protect what that artist wants to do. Um, I feel like that's my job. That's what I always try to remember. So I never want to throw cold water on 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 an artist's ideas or anything like that. I want to do the opposite. Other than modern technology and filmmaking entering into you know this digital space, how has or has storytelling for you as an editor changed much? Or is it sort of like a good story is going to be a good story and the way you approach it is going to still be the same regardless of technology or any modern sort of effects or anything. Right. I mean, there's, I think it's kind of, I think at its core storytelling is the same, you know, it's, it's about, in my view, it's about telling a story and constructing it in a way, articulating it in a way that, that, is accessible to the widest possible audience. To me, that's what, Hmm. that's what, um, movies are. Um, and, and I say that knowing that there's shades of this, obviously shades in between, you know, there's great cinematic work that is very specific that, um, 
you know, and, and when I say appeal to a wide audience, I think, you know, we see movies all the time where our biggest complaint might be how watered down it is and how, how, um, how much of a sellout this movie is because it's, it's, it's pandering to a wide audience. So, um, so obviously there's, there's degrees of nuance, you know, um, uh, within all of that, but, but generally when I work on a movie, I want to build it in a way or help build it in a way that, that really, um, articulates the emotion, articulates the action in a way that more people will understand it when they see it on the big screen. And so, I mean, I think all of that is kind of the same as it ever was in a way, um, uh, you know, in the early days where it's, you know, film and when there was no sound and then when there was sound and then, you know, all those technological advances, I think, I think it's really all still storytelling. Um, all that being said, how we construct the movies and how we shoot them and how we edit them, that has changed. And that, that, that means that the aesthetics have evolved, you know, the way we put scenes together is a little different. Um, we can, you know, we can do things that I can, as a film editor today, I can um, manipulate the image uh, in a way that film editors 20 years ago couldn't do or 50 years ago they couldn't do. Does it mean that the movies 20 years ago or 50 years ago are less effective or less emotional? No, I don't think that. I don't think that means that at all. I think that's, I think I can... I can watch It's a Wonderful Life and be choked up by the end, you know. Um, similarly, I can watch a movie, you know, made yesterday and 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 get choked up or find it funny or be thrilled. And so, you know, it, it's 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 an interesting thing because watching old movies, I love movies. I've always loved movies. I love watching old movies. Um, there's something that happens for me when when um when I watch an old movie you know, my brain automatically um, calibrates to um, to the time period that the movie was made, I, I, the context. Yeah. And so automatically that happens. So if I'm watching an old movie, um, I usually don't um, think about how old fashioned it is or how dated it is. I just kind of get into the story if it's done well. I just get into the I just get into the story and I can be I can find myself more moved by movies older Hollywood movies for example um sometimes I find very moving um and maybe part of it is because the style was different in some cases the character the, the characters are drawn more broadly and maybe that means I can I can project specificity onto them whereas ironically portrayals that might be more specific today um i might find emotional but maybe less emotional because because it's drawn so specifically and i i project less of what i want to project onto it maybe but um but the the one thing i think that that does it's very interesting because this this takes it back around to to our 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 collective topic here um And when I see older movies uh, and I talk about how I don't usually think that they're dated, when I see cultural things 
that are in older movies. Um, I'm more aware of that now. And that's the, that's the, those are the places where I think in my head, wow, that is really dated. You couldn't do that, Mm. you know, today. And, uh, you know, I know I was listening to, and I've had conversations with Dawn about this. Um, and I was listening to your podcast and, you know, um, she made mention of movies that she grew up watching like breakfast at Tiffany's and stuff like that. Um, Mickey Rooney playing an Asian character, um, caricature. And, um, yeah, that stuff is really, I find really difficult to, to see. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, I did not really recognize that. Wow. I think Duan talked about recognizing it right away, that that gave her feelings right away, that yeah. she didn't, she didn't, um, it made her uncomfortable or made her sad or, you know, she had feelings about it, um, which makes a lot of sense. When I grew up, um, I really came at it from a different perspective, you know? And so the first R-rated movie, my parents were usually pretty protective of me going to what what I was seeing in the theater. I was not allowed to see R-rated movies um, as a kid. And my parents didn't take me to R-rated movies. They made an exception for a couple early movies, the first one being Apocalypse Now, um, which my parents took me to on its initial release because it was a topic that was considered important at the time. And I saw that movie, I was nine years old, and it had this immense impact on me. It was this extremely powerful movie. Um, and uh, and I love the movie to this day. Um, but clearly, if you know the movie, it is it is a story told from a certain point of view, you know? And um, the Vietnam War and the country, the people, that's just kind of a backdrop right. to this other story. And I really, you know, it's a much more complicated um me looking at those movies today is much more complex than it was back then. You know, I mean, I really um, almost like saw it through what I would perceive to be, you know, my, my dad's point of view. Um, Not that he expressed an overt point of view, but I saw it from the point of view of an American, of a white person, you know? And so I was much more, um, you know, fascinated by, you know, what the GIs were wearing, you know, what beer they drank, what, uh, you know, what, you know, what, what their methods were, you know, how did they live their lives? Those characters, those are the ones that I'm, oh, this, this is what I'm supposed to be watching. And, and then other movies that, you know, I mean, we talk about war movies. I mean, Full Metal Jacket, Stanley yeah. Kubrick movie. Um, I, Loved that movie when it came out. I love Stanley Kubrick. I loved the movie when it came out. Um, I still love the movie, but there's things in it, caric- caricatures and things like that, that I that I have a hard time watching, you know, and that that I think about now in a way that I did not think about when it came out, you know, um, because when it came out, I was really looking at it from a different perspective, and um, and I don't think the characters on the screen, I did not connect yeah with my mother uh with my family with uh my people in a way 
um, that I do. I now I do because when I when I see some of those characters, I immediately think of my mom, and those 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 characterizations of my mom, the the real people, like those things, I can't reconcile because they're not they're 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 completely different things, and that's what makes it um, challenging to watch. You know, and, and that um, is such a an interesting uh, topic today because if you really think about this idea of wokeness, this idea that we have to pay attention to the voices that are not being heard, this is relatively new, mm-hmm. but it is it is something that is almost mandatory for Americans to kind of wake up to because these voices that have not been able to sort of say their speak their mind on screen or be uh projections of a, a smaller more marginalized community um it's this tug of war that you know so many people in the Vietnamese community get annoyed at this idea of wokeness but at the same time we are as a community in America as a total uh population we need to be more energized and and really awaken to the fact that there are like these other viewpoints that affect the way America sees Vietnamese people. And I think that there's always a struggle um, within our own community. The, the complexity of that is um, we can go on for hours to talk about that. That's a a, a yeah. whole thing. And and this idea of wokeness is is so important. Um, and but I get why it bothers uh, a lot of conservative uh, Vietnamese, older first generation. Yeah. But at the same time, it's you know what you're describing. It's like we uh, see Full Metal Jacket, you know, when it came out, and then 20 years later, 15 years later, when you look at it again, it takes on a whole new meaning. Totally, totally. And, and, you know, yeah, you're right. It is, it's a deep topic. This will be, this will be part two or yeah. whatever. We'll have to do part two, but just to touch on it briefly. I mean, I think, you know, I think this idea of wokeness is uh, the, it's hard in some ways you have to get past, um, you know, how the term has been politicized yes. and, and it's, it's very messy right now. It's, it's, but, but the way I see it, in terms of representation is, is, you know, when movies, when, when Hollywood, the Hollywood system would make movies, they really wanted their movies again, to appeal to uh, a a wide audience. How can we make this, how can we tell the story that's universal from our point of view, universal playing to the room as we see it. Um, And so that's who they made movies for. Um, now I, I think that the way I understand it, I understand why people can be angered about all this wokeness that's imposed on, on, on our society and on artwork, because, you know, now you have to be PC and you have to check off all these boxes. And yes, there is a cynical way that you could look at art and look at movies and say, oh my God, that's just such a that's a cash grab, you know, like they just, they just like cast this character or created this character just to check off a box so they could make more money. And I think they're there. I think that does happen. I think there is truth to that at the same time. um, I think you can't overstate, you know, the importance of representation and, and, and if we've learned anything in recent days, we've learned that, um, 
you know, representation, our ideas of different cultures and different peoples, like how different people misunderstand different people. I mean, I think you can make a great argument for, for um, the importance of representing and putting out um, visions of who we really are, whatever we are, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, you see it in, in the black community when, you know, when say, for example, Marvel released black Panther, you know, you can see, uh, I mean, you can see how much that, yeah. you know, affected people and how there were all sorts of people who were happy that they were finally seeing representation. They were finally seeing characters that were positive characters that look like themselves. I mean, I don't think you can overstate um, how powerful that is and how, and how much that's needed in a way. And so I, so I, I, yeah, you can look at it cynically and there are examples like that, but I also think that there, there's the flip side to it as well, which is that um, I don't think there, not only do I not think there's anything wrong with wanting to tell stories from different points of views from the actual people. Um, I think it's, I think it's kind of essential, you know, we need and it. We need it. And need you know, it. what's very interesting is, is, you know, we going back to your, your grand question, you know, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? I mean, it's something I, again, you know, I meditate on all the time. It evolves. Um, all that being said, you know, I'm, I have my own family. I'm married. I have kids and, and the whole lot of us, are are made up of different different people different backgrounds i mean there's puerto rican there's black there's mexican there's you know and so what's really interesting for me is as i try to evolve and um navigate um what it means to me as a parent and family member i'm also navigating um i feel the need to navigate what it, you know, how do I help, you know, my family navigate the world being black, being Mexican, being, you know, being all these things. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting to sort of not only meditate on, on my own stuff specifically, but also feeling the need to, um, to almost like do my homework yeah. on, you know, um, so that, so that I can, I can, help other ends of my family in a way, you know? So you, you know, uh, I debated this and I had to have a conversation with another person that, you know, I, I'm, I'm really in awe of the, the Oscar experience for you. Mm. And I was like, Oh my God, should I be talking about this? But I'm like, it, it, this is like one of the biggest questions that I have, like to be nominated, to get, that call or that letter yeah what was that experience like and then finally getting into the award show and then finally winning it you know can you walk me through that whole journey yeah yeah uh i i can but i'll try to i mean it, it's such a it was i used to watch the oscars with my yeah. mom and dad you know we used to watch it on tv and there was something i always really loved about that because not only did i love movies but in a way, this award show um, on TV, this silly, you know, pompous award show, 
uh, with the celebrities and the movie stars. That I think was really important for my experience because it it was something it it came in a form on TV in a form that people could understand, like my parents could understand it. Um, the fact that it was a big event on TV also um, was a stamp of approval for movies. Um, and so there's prestige, even though it's very glitzy and, you know, there's, there obviously are superficial uh, elements to it. Um, still, I couldn't deny back then that there was this prestige to it. And I think um, when it came to me pursuing filmmaking, um, you know, that validated um, movies in, in, you know, in a way that, you know, not only my parents, cause I said, my mom is an artist and, you know, um, they always nurtured that, but just in a way that they could, express to other family members, you know, um, the feeling being that, you know, and these other family members are so far away from the movie business, you know? Um, but, but everyone, everyone knows what an Oscar is, or they have a vague idea of what it is. It's that, you know, so it was very validating, you know? Um, and, but of course, again, I felt very far away from, ever winning one or ever being considered for one or anything like that. I mean, it was certainly, it was certainly like a pipe dream, a dream, but like a pipe dream. And, um, but it wasn't like I was working my whole career toward it. It was just this, you know, so, I mean, for me, it was such a momentous thing to be nominated because I had kind of worked away, you know, um, for 20 years as an assistant editor and I just started editing Whiplash was my third feature film that I did as an editor. Um, and the first two I was really proud of, but no one saw the movies. And, um, and, and I had to, when I did, when I did the editing, I, I, no one, I still wasn't accepted as an editor. So I had to go back to assistant editing, you know, to try to make ends meet. And finally with Whiplash, um, when I got nominated, it was, it was, I mean, it was the stamp of approval that basically jump-started my editing career. I mean, I, I wow. was, yeah, like, so it was, so, cause people asked me, did that really do anything? I mean, it was like, it literally was life-changing because as soon as I got nominated, all of a sudden, um, a person like me who had no body of work as an editor, all of a sudden I was, people knew me, knew my name. And I remember I grew up as, as I've described loving movies. I I'm also kind of an editor buff. Like I, I sort of, I had a, I, I knew editors names. I idolize editors. When I was nominated, there was um, an Academy event, a dinner that, that all the nominees were invited to. And, um, and at the dinner were the Oscar nominated editors, five of us, or I think it was six of us, because two two editors for one movie. So six of us. And there were a room of important Academy uh editors from the Academy branch, legendary editors. And one of them was a legendary editor from Apocalypse Now, uh Richard Marks, who also worked on Godfather Two and someone, you know, an idol, right? When I walked into that room. We didn't know each other. He greeted me by name because 
he knew the work, you know? So that's what happened when I was nominated. Um, you know, when, I mean, <laughs> I don't even know how to get to being, to winning, but um, I think it was like, you know, hearing my name being called. I mean, it was like this out of body experience. And I had, you know, I was, I was told by another editor who gave me advice uh, uh, that I spoke to way before this, you know, he said, you know, practice, practice your speech. You'll hear, you'll hear, you know, as you get nominated and you go through the award circuit, people tell you, and eh, practice your speech, rehearse it or whatever. And so I had a little, little speech or whatever that I was like rehearsed in my head and stuff like that. And, and somehow something clicked in. I walked up there and I clicked in and I just said these things. And I don't know, like it was it was out of body in a yeah. way. And um and I don't know, it was it what the other thing I remember is after being nominated was um, you know, I was I started getting nominated for other things before the Oscar. I got nominated for a British Academy Award, a BAFTA, which was a bit which was an amazing deal. Um, and nominated for an independent spirit award. And, you know, I had just signed with an agent. I just got an agent right ahead of this, right after Whiplash played Sundance. So that was new to me. And we, we were, you know, there were a couple sort of independent movies that I was in the running for and I got nominated for BAFTA and we were, you know, he was kind of fielding these calls for these indie movies that I was excited to do. And I think it was the day after I got nominated for an Oscar, you know, I called him up. And I said this, you know, we talked about, oh, it's great. You know, and I said, well, what do I do about, what about this movie and this movie that do I, when am I going to meet on this? And he said, no, 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 we're not doing those movies anymore. <laughs> like I had been nominated for all these other things and we were still doing it, but it was the Oscar that was such a different distinction, a whole other level. They like, no, 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 we're not, we're not, we're not doing those things. Meaning we're 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 aiming we're we're going to shoot now. the moon on this. We're aiming much higher for this. And then and then the next thing I ended up doing was David O. Russell's movie Joy. Yeah. But um, uh, but yeah. So that was that was sort of this thing that all of a sudden you're I'm thrown into the stratosphere. And then after, you know, I mean the thing, the thing about the Oscar is, all of a sudden you know, in terms of me trying to make it as an editor and establish a name, all of a sudden, you know, I had, I had a name, you know, and everyone knew it and it, cause everyone knew the movie. And so it was with one movie, with one experience, I established a whole career, you know? Um, and obviously, you know, then the work starts, but, but and I was allowed to do that work. It's crazy to think that for 20 years as an assistant editor, it's really not a career. Yeah, that, That's what I'm hearing. It's like, yeah. Well, it it's certainly was, I was proud of all the work that I participated in. I, I, I like, it was amazing. I, I, there was, it, in some ways it was a great career. Um, it was always, you know, kind of hand to mouth. It was always a hustle. You know, it's not, I didn't, I wasn't an assistant that worked on huge movies. I worked on great things, but as an assistant, I didn't make tons of money. Um, and so it was always a hustle. And, um, and, but then, you know, I remember my agent telling me um, in the context of a very, we're talking about career and stuff like that. And early, you know, when whiplash was starting to get heat. And he said, you know, he said, he looked, if he, 
if if someone were to ask him, if he looked at my resume before or whiplash, if someone were to ask him, you know, is this guy going to go someplace? Is he going to do things? Is he going to be great? Is he going to, he, he would have said, no, no, I don't, I don't see anything here that tells me this guy's going places, you know? And so that's what I try to tell like aspiring mm -hmm. filmmakers and film editors, like it just takes one. You never know. Um, you never know what is going to be your whiplash or whatever. Like there's Quentin Tarantino's editor, the late Sally Menke used to, advise up and coming editors used to say, you know, try to keep your overhead low so you can afford to do that pro bono movie or a low budget thing. Cause that could be your reservoir dogs, you know, which is the movie that yeah. catapulted her, you know? And I say something similar. I retell that little anecdote or whatever. And, but I, I say something similar because, you know, I cut a little short film, which is how I connected with Damien Chazelle. We did the short film version of Whiplash. And then I was lucky enough to be able to do the feature. And then everything changed from there, you know. And, um, you know, if it wasn't if it wasn't for the Oscar, I I would not be I would not have the career that I have had so far. I wouldn't have cut James Bond. I wouldn't have I might not even have been able to cut La La Land. You know, just be only because I know my connection with Damien was, you know, we had a collaboration, but, you know, with each of these movies, the movies get yeah. larger in scope and budget. And I am being, you know, given the keys to a bigger kingdom every time without having done it myself. I hadn't cut a movie the size of La La Land when I did it. So, um, you know, film studios are famously risk adverse. Um, they, they, you know, they never want to entrust something to someone who hasn't done it before. So, but because I had won an Academy Award, that was enough validation yeah. um, that would, you know, that was a credential that that has protected me and helped me navigate all of those things. Um, so I, I, that can't be overstated how much that has meant for my career. I think with each Oscar winner, it's probably different. Everyone has their own experience. But for me, it started my career, you know? With Whiplash, though, did you know that that was going to be your Whiplash? Did you know that that was going to be an impactful pivot in your career? Um, I was hoping it would be, but I, I did not know that it was going to be as successful as it was. I mean, I think I... You know, I'm a member of American Cinema Editors, um, an honorary society of editors, um, and you can see the members in the credits for TV and and movies because there's an acronym after the name ACE, right. standing for American Cinema Editors. I mean, it's it's a prestigious organization, a group of of like-minded film editors. Um, who do great work and strive to like raise the prestige level of editors everywhere around the world. I mean, I think my hope for Whiplash was that I would be invited to join that organization, which I was, but that's about as far as I oh, sort yeah. of could see. I never thought that I'd be nominated or win a BAFTA or win an Academy Award. And I remember um, doing, <clears throat> I can't remember what it was. I was, I was interviewed for this Vietnamese um, TV show and I can't remember, I can't remember what it was, but you know, back in the green room, I remember meeting a photographer um, who who said that 
he said the same thing you said, which is like, you're the first Vietnamese uh, American to win an Oscar or something. And, and he, he made a comparison. It was like the first, I think it was like, um, like I was the first to win an Oscar. And he mentioned, I think the photographer is Nick, Nick. Ut. Yeah. Nick. Ut. Yeah. Nick. Ut. Okay. Yeah. So who was the first to win a Pulitzer, Pulitzer for, yeah. Yeah. Which, which I was embarrassed to be in the same conversation with Nick about Nick. Ut. Like I was like, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, th thank you. You know, I like, thank you for saying that. But I was like, you know, to me, I was like, I'm just, that person is legendary, you know, like I'm that person's lived a life and had, you know, is, 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 is earned every accolade and is, he's like a, like this legend. And I'm, I'm just some guy, you know, <laughs> who got lucky. And so, um, but that's, but I think a big thing that I realized is like afterwards was, um, you know, when I would, when I would see people after the awards and the awards, um, after parties and things like that. And I remember, I remember taking the Oscar to uh, my favorite neighborhood restaurant, you know, cause, cause the, the chef, I came in to get food once and the chef said, you know, I didn't, you know, he didn't know I was nominated yeah. or anything. Like I didn't know him that well, but we were, I was a regular and he, and he stopped me. He's like, you know, I saw you on TV and you want, and I'm like, Oh, that's a great. Thank you. And I was like, I'll bring it in. And I brought it in and we took pictures and, you know, what I realized is that, and of course I took it home to New York to show my in-laws and like this thing makes so, so many people happy, you know? Um, and my friends were so happy for me and, you know, my, um, you know, my family, um, I, I remember, you know, my mother passed away in August of 2015. So not that long after I won a few months and, after. Yeah. And, and I was so, I feel, um, so complete that she was able to live long enough to see that. Um, and yeah, I just keep, I just keep, it's, I have such a positive experience. Like I said, it, it, it sort of made people happy in a way. And, um, and I start, you know, this is where, you know, I started, it, it invited more meditation on this stuff because I remember getting, messages people on facebook and uh other emails and other linkedin and other things from vietnamese people who were reaching out to me um and this 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 connects with what that person said you know in that green room talking about nick oot and stuff like that like just that like in a way it it was bigger than bigger than me you know bigger than it became a bigger thing and I think that was really the first time I started thinking about representing, mm. you know, what does that mean for where, do, where do I, what place do I have in that, you know, and where do I fit? And, and in a way, you know, like, what is my responsibility? You know, I feel like I have a responsibility, you know, and uh, I, I have I, a responsibility I to represent. talk about that responsibility. Uh, but before I talk about the responsibility, I want to finally say that, it relieves me that we have had this uh, conversation today because I go everywhere telling people that we have Pulitzers on on the podcast, we have Emmy winners, and then I go to Aust and then I have to stop myself because there's never been an Oscar winner that 
that has been on the podcast because we don't have any. We don't have uh, that many. I mean, there's you and Kiwe Kwan now, but right. now I can proudly go out into the world and say on the podcast, we've had Emmy winners, we've had Pulitzers, and now we have Oscar, you know, and Kiwe hopefully yeah. uh, will come on soon. But the responsibility is something that I wanted to ask you about. Have yeah. you have you been back to Vietnam? No, I've I've never been. I've never been. And that's not that's something that it's always hard for me to say because I I, I almost feel like I, I meet people who um who it feels like would have no interest in going to Vietnam and they've they've been they've been and I haven't been. <laughs> um you know, it's it's something it's like somebody going to the Bahamas, you know, and they it's just and like, they don't care. They don't yeah, care. exactly. Yeah. You're exactly. like the, you're like, yeah, and it's very loaded. For me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, my wife and I, we were gonna go. Uh, we had we had these plans to go, uh, and of course, you know, when I was in high school and college, I always assumed that I would go back with my yeah. parents someday. My parents never. Uh, well, let me let me stop myself there. My mom never returned when she left in '67. She never went back. My dad went back for work-related stuff. Wow. Um, what happened is he, like in 1980, which now is a long time ago, but in 1980, he was in Thailand on business. And because he was so close, he um, decided to make a trip there. And he made a trip there and made contact with family members who were still there. And he went to all the old places that he knew um, in Saigon in, in the 60s. And at that point, things were very different. You know, he took pictures. He took a lot of pictures when he was there in Saigon in the 60s. He took pictures sometimes from a similar vantage point in the 80s. And in the 80s, it was a very different place than what people describe today, of course. Very different. In 1980, Dicey. way... I remember from his pictures and the way he would describe it, it was like Saigon, this bustling city was like a ghost town with um, people wandering around looking like they had nothing to do. Um, you know, this image that we have of Saigon as this bustling place in the 1960s that we mainly, that I mainly know through movies and yeah. documentaries where you see traffic circles and, and uh, ciclos and mopeds filled to the brim with yeah. Western advertising and stuff like that. All of that was whitewashed and gone. No Western advertising, police carrying AK-47s, um, and just just like a ghost town. But of course, you know, because you, you've been, I only know from what people tell me, it's a completely transformed place. But when I grew up, I was always expecting and hoping that I would go back and especially go back with my mom, go back with both my parents. I just thought I would, and that ended up not happening. Um, and I don't feel, I don't feel too bad about that because only because for my mom and my dad, I don't, I don't know that it was a big priority of my mom's. Right. I mean, it was an important thing to me, but um, it wasn't something that she, it didn't feel like unfinished business for her. So I can kind of let myself off the hook a little bit in that way. But my wife and I were going to go a number, like maybe a little more than 10 years ago, we had plans to go and then we had a kid. And when you have little babies, like it just, that sort of 
meant that we kicked any sort of trips down, kicked that can down the road. And so well, we've yet to go and we if, will. Yeah. If you, when, and if you, when you go, uh, please let me know. And um, there's a lot of filmmakers in Vietnam that would love to hear your experience. Uh, there are many guys that, uh, film directors and producers that have and host these events for young filmmakers. Um, and they're teaching at universities. They're spread out all over Vietnam, um, helping the Vietnamese film industry. So uh, I could put out the word as soon as you let me know um, if you're heading back there, uh, they would love to spend time with you. Uh, many of them know who you are and uh, you know, it would be phenomenal to have um, you know, you back in the homeland. I would, I would love that. And, and that's the thing is part of my journey, I think is, is it's very, I mean, it's kind of ironic in a way, but now that my mom has passed um, only now, you know, with it's, it's very interesting that, 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 that milestone of winning and then really realizing that this is, that, that this is bigger than me and, and, yeah. and, and in a way that that there are people for lack of a better way of looking at it there are people who you know who look up to me and certain people who when they saw me win you know that meant something to them and like i said that's bigger than me and and but i do feel this you know again it's 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 feeling that responsibility yeah. um so ironically as my mother has sort of passed and gone away you know it's ironic to me and interesting to think that now um now i've i feel more of a pull to connect and to to reconcile things that i didn't really think about before you know and uh and it's interesting like you know one of my favorite my my kids their favorite food is getting just getting pho mm -hmm. you know yeah. as a kid my dad, my mom would make pho for my dad and he loved that. Yeah. Meanwhile, I would just have like a hot dog or something like that as a kid. Um, then as an adult, basically when I went to college, I started eating different, trying different foods and stuff like that. And that's where I gained uh, uh, a love for Vietnamese food. Like, and so, but it's so funny how that, how, you know, Changes. how that, you know, it's like two, two, two ships passing exactly. on the night in a way. Like I think of my mom and her influence and, you know, and, uh, and certain things that we, you know, we could have shared that we didn't really share, but, you know, um, but yeah. So I think about like wanting to connect more. Um, and I, maybe I feel it too is because that, you know, as my mom is gone and now the older generation sort of passes on you know, I sort of feel a little more clinging to things that are, um, you know, that I used to take for granted in a way, or just assume that's always going to be there, or it's there in a complicated form. Um, but now I feel like I want, there are things I want to connect with and reconcile. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's interesting, you know, my, my dad, uh, American, you know, he will, you know, every sort of anniversary he'll set up, he'll set up the altar, you know, for my mom and mm. family members. And it's the white guy setting up the, you know, um, it's amazing. 
Tom, thank you so much uh, for coming on and spending uh, the time with me today. And, mm. you know, I, like I said, it's just, we just scratched the surface today with, with the stories that you have. And um, I, I really look forward to the next time we, we get to sit down and do this. Likewise, you know, Ken, it's an honor to be, to be asked and invited to, to speak with you. And uh, you have so many eloquent people who think about this. What does it mean to be Vietnamese? What is, what is that? You know, like they, people have a lot of deep thoughts about that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, these are amazing conversations. Like I said, it's an honor to, to even have this dialogue with you. I want to say this, Mintam, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.